you have your Bibles, if you open them to Hebrews chapter 10, I'd appreciate that. On this Sunday before Christmas as we celebrate Jesus' birth. Uh, we're going to continue on our Christmas series. Uh, when we look at our world around us, we've been in this COVID pandemic now for about two years, right? And uh, it has affected all of us, whether you've had COVID or not, it has affected you. You've experienced the shutdowns, you've experienced the, the, the wearing of masks, you've experienced the social distancing, the vac vaccine mandates, and whether you like them or not. It's hurt some of you on your jobs, and some of you are questioning if you're going to have a job. Some of you, maybe you've lost your jobs. It's seen when our government is divided about every issue we see in, in the government today. We've seen inflation taking place across the country. Uh, it seems our country is on a spending spray, and it's about ready to go over a physical cliff. Uh, would cause an economic uh, breakdown, kind of collapse of our country. We hear the supply chains for the things we need, including Christmas gifts, are, are in short supply. We see theft and robbery across the big cities across our nation, all around us. We see these things. There are lots of things we could list here, and lots you could have your own personal list. The hopelessness is all around us. Well, how do we find hope in the midst of an overwhelming hopelessness in this world? How do we find that? And I want to share with you this morning, on the Sunday before Christmas, that hope in the midst of hopelessness is in Jesus. It's in Jesus this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I said, if you have them, to Hebrews chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I want to take you back to Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy and the law. We have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's called the Torah. It, it is given to the children of Israel. It's, it's their story. It's their beginning. It's their history. But also the law. The specifics of the law. In Deuteronomy 17, God, God was saying to them, the time is going to come where you're going to come into the land that I give you, and you're going to want a king. And you're going to want a king like all the other nations. But when you choose that king, he says, make sure you appoint a king, the one that I would choose for you. It wasn't wrong for them to want a king. God was just saying to them, to make sure you accept the king that I choose for you, that I've got a king, make sure you choose that. And then he gives them some requirements for that king in Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning with verse 15. He says, first of all, when you're looking for that king and you're choosing a king, make sure the king is one of your brothers. That you don't want a foreigner leading you as a nation, but you want one of your brothers. So make sure you have one of your brothers that's going to be leading you. Secondly, he says in Deuteronomy 17, verse 16, he says, when you're making sure, when you choose that king, make sure he's not consu so consumed with building a stable of horses and, and, and having thousands of horses. So we'd have to go back to Egypt to get those horses. You don't want to go back that way again, he says. Don't go back that way. And then thirdly, it says in Deuteronomy 17, 17, he says, make sure your king doesn't have many wives. Otherwise, his heart will be led astray and start worshiping those other gods. And, and God was saying this way before it ever happens. Unfortunately, they didn't listen to obey him, right? And he goes on to say, he says, your king should not be one who wants to accumulate large amounts of gold and, and silver. So God is kind of narrowing the field for them and telling the people, this is what I want for you as a king for you. This is what I want. And then he goes on in, in Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. He says, when your king will sit on that throne, he should have a written copy of the law. And so he can read it all the days of his life. And he goes on in verse 19 and he says this, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. That was the requirement that God gave them for a king. This is what your king should have. This is the requirement. 
So the time came hundreds of years later when they were looking for a king, and they wanted a king, and they got a king, and it was King Saul. But he didn't meet the requirements. So they got another king by the name of David. He became their king. And David was referencing this in Psalm 40, Deuteronomy 17. And he wasn't, he was referencing it here, uh, not to say he fulfilled it as a king, but to tell us two things, two things he was saying. This is what the kings are supposed to be. Secondly, he was saying that there's a king coming after me, that he will meet all the requirements of this perfectly, is what he's saying. And in Psalm 40, in the first five verses, it's talking about God's triumph of, of God in David's life and also in the nation's life. And then David gets to Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8, and this is what he says. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. David, in many respects, we, we could all say most everyone agrees he was a good king. He was a good king. While his intent was to meet the qualifications of Deuteronomy 17, he did not. David did not meet those. In many ways, he blew it. We have that written, recorded for us in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, uh, of, of the great stories of David's repentance. But David had a desire. His desire in his heart was, he says, I live in this big palace, this big, beautiful palace with these paneled walls, and, and it's a wonderful place to live in. And I live in this. But God is worshipped in a tent. And it's not right that God is worshipped in a tent, and I'm in this palace. So he tells his prophet Nathan, he says, this is my heart's desire, that I want to build a temple for God. I want to build a house for God. And Nathan, he should have prayed about it. He was a, a prophet, a spokesperson for God, but he didn't. He just said, hey, sounds good to me, David. Go for it. Well, that night when Nathan goes to bed, God uh, woke him up and spoke to him, or he spoke to him in his sleep, and he says, Nathan, when you told David it was all right to, for him to build that temple, that was never my intention for him to do. Tomorrow morning, you need to go back to David and tell him he can't build that temple. And can you imagine Nathan having going to the king of Israel, have to go to David, the king, to his palace and tell him it has to be embarrassing. He told him to go, go ahead and do it, and God kind of rebukes him and says, no, it's not okay. Can you imagine him going there, and he knocks on the palace door, he comes in, and David's excited. He wants to build this heart, this uh, palace for God. That's his heart's desire, and he's probably, Nathan comes in, Nathan, I want to tell you what I'm going to build for God. And he probably has the plans in his mind, he's sharing all this with, with Nathan, and he goes, oh, oh, that's right, you came in to see me. What did you want, Nathan? And he probably says, King David, God spoke to me last night, and he says, you're not to build that palace. He doesn't want you to build that house for him, that temple. Can you imagine? Have you ever had that happen to you? Well, you wanted something so badly, and you prayed about it, and you prayed about it, and you prayed about it, and God said, no. No, no, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You're not going to do that. And maybe you say, okay, God, I understand that. That's not going to happen. But could I have a reason? Because my heart really beats for this. I really want to do this. And God sometimes gives us the reason, and sometimes God doesn't give us the reason. Sometimes we look in the rearview mirrors weeks or months or years later, or we're so glad that God didn't answer a prayer. You, you ever have that? Well, you look back and say, man, God, thank you for not answering the prayer the way I desired to be answered. But there are other times we will never know the reason until we get to heaven, and I talked about that a couple weeks ago. We're never going to know that reason. In David's case, God gave him the reason. He gave him the reason why he couldn't build the temple. And God said to David, he said, David, I don't want you to build me a house because I want to build you a house. And God says, I want to build you a kingdom. And this house is going to be a kingdom, and there will be one David in your lineage who's going to sit on your throne forever and ever and ever. 
So David dies. And the coronation of the new king comes on, on that throne. It comes coronation day. And everybody has to be asking a question. Is this the one? Is this the guy who's going to sit on David's throne? Who's going to fulfill all the requirements to Deuteronomy 17. And he's going to sit on David's throne forever and ever and ever and ever. And it wasn't too long where they realized this is not the one. This is not the guy. And so another king comes and dies. And another king comes and dies. And another king comes and dies. And finally, the northern kingdom is carried off into captivity. In 722 B.C., the ten tribes in the nor northern Israel are carried off into captivity, captivity by the Assyrians. And now all the focus on the southern kingdom and their kings. And another king comes. And another king comes. And another king comes. And a nation left there is wondering. They're saying, this is not the one. And they're wondering, who is he? And when is he going to come? And meanwhile, while all this has happened, Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, verse 5. He says, this king that will come, you need to understand that he will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And the people have to be scratching their head. And, and Isaiah had to be scratching his head and saying, who is this? A king who dies? What is this all about? And then we get to Hebrews chapter 10. And the author of Hebrews is talking about Jesus here. And, he, and, he, and when he comes to begin his reign on the throne of David. And he says in, at the beginning of verse 5, he says this, verse 5 and 6. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. This morning, hopefully you have your outline with you. I want to give you three reasons to have hope this Christmas. And they're great reasons. They're great reasons to have hope. The first one is because God has made a way. God has made a way. God has a plan that works. Aren't you glad about that? Amen? God has a plan that works because we don't. We don't have a plan that works. Matter of fact, the scriptures tells us in the beginning of time when Adam fell, his sin fell on each one of us and we all sinned. In Romans 5.12, listen to what it says. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, meaning Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because we've all sinned. When Adam fell in the garden, death came on all of us, and every one of us were born into sin. That's our sin, that's our nature. Our nature is to sin. So we're going to sin. That's our propensity. We're going to sin. That's a result. Every one of us are, are caught in our own sin. You don't have to train your children to do, do bad, do you? They already do that because that's our nature. You've got to train them to do good because our propensity is to sin. Every one of us, that's our nature. And we do what's according to our nature. So the nation of Israel had a plan uh, with God in the law. It was called the sacrificial system. That when sin came into their lives, they, they made the sin right with God through repentance in the heart. Remember that. They made that sin right with God through repentance in the heart. Always remember that it was through the heart that God was concerned with. And so, but the community of faith didn't know what was going on inside the heart. So they had this sacrificial system. When they offered these animals, these sin offerings, these commitment offerings, and these burnt offerings, and so forth and so forth, then the community of faith could say, when they saw someone sacrifice an animal, oh, God is doing something in their heart. There's something going on in that person's heart. They could say that, right? Because they could see that's what the sacrifice was. It was all about what was going on in their heart. So, but the difficulty was that man kept sinning. They just kept sinning. And so they, another animal, and then there was another animal, and then there was another animal had to be sacrificed. The second difficulty was that the form became a ritual. 
what was going on. And they said, we're just offering another sacrifice. We're just offering another animal because we sinned a lot last month. So we're just going to offer another animal. But there wasn't confession of the heart that was taking place there. It wasn't confession. And so with no confession of the heart, all this burnt offering did was, was just a sham. It was just a hypocritical thing that was going on, causing people to think that there was something going on in the heart when there wasn't anything going on in the heart. It was just a ritual they were doing, just sacrificing an animal and another animal and another animal, but there was nothing going on in the heart. You remember the day that King Saul sac made a sacrifice, but he was disobedient to God? And Samuel comes along, and he asks the question in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. He says, what does God really want? Does God want obedience, or does God want another dead animal, a sacrifice? The, the, the answer to that is obvious. What is it God wants? Obedience. God wants obedience is what he wants. And David, when he prayed uh, in one of his prayers of repentance in Psalm 51, he says this, Sacrifices and burnt offerings you don't desire, but what you desire is a broken and contrite heart. This the Lord will not despise, he says. And you remember that great time of national sin in, in Micah chapter 6 where the people had sinned so greatly against God. And there was this court scene. And, and, and in this court scene, the nation of Israel was, was said guilty of all the crimes, all the things they did against God. And so the people say, we are guilty. What do you want us to do about this, God? What do you want us to do? Do you want us to offer a year old calf? Do you want a, a, quantity, a quality sacrifice? Or do you want a quantity sacrifice? Do we offer thousands of rams and 10,000 river oils? They're asking all the wrong questions. And then God responds and gives them the answer. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, he says this. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. God wants the heart change. That's what he was all about, the heart change. We have in Isaiah chapter 1, the people were offering their sacrifices to God and everything. And God says, stop the sacrifices. I don't want your sacrifices anymore. Because you're offering your sacrifices, what you're doing, you're abusing the weakest in your society. You're abusing your, the orphans and the widows in your, in your court systems. He goes, stop it. And what God was showing us, so your sacrifices don't take care of your sin. You do. You take care of your sin. And your sacrifice should be a picture of that. Did you follow me, what it's saying there? Do you follow what's going on? So the sacrifices were supposed to be a picture of what was going on inside of the heart. When they offered the sacrifice, people should know there's repentance going on inside of the heart that was happening at that time. Just like today, what we have today, that we have baptism. Baptism doesn't save anyone, does it? Water baptism. But water baptism is a symbol, is a picture of what happened the moment you accepted Jesus Christ, your Savior. That you go in the water, you, you go down in the water, you die to self, you come up out of the water, it's a new life in Christ, right? And it gives a picture of what happened a long time ago. Well, that's what the, what this, what the sacrifice is. We're supposed to be a picture of what was going on inside of the heart. And what was happening, the systems in place wasn't working. It wasn't working at all. The people weren't obeying. They were disobedient. It wasn't working. There wasn't no repentance in the heart. In Psalm 118, God finally says, this is what's going to work. I'm going to tell you what's going to work. And he gives them the plan. God says, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And he's talking to believe in community who are, is living in sin, but they're just going through the motions, just going through it. And God says, your system isn't working, but God has a 
better way. What do you say? I've got a better way. A better way. I Googled uh, on the internet to make sure I wasn't missing anything. The ways to get to heaven. I wanted to make sure I wasn't missing anything. And one of them said there was 10 ways to get to heaven. Another one, there was all kinds of ways. And they, one was saying there's many ways to get to heaven as our religions. And then another one said there was two ways to get to heaven. And, and I kind of liked that one because I thought that's what a lot of people believe. A lot of people believe one of the ways to get to heaven is you have to be good to get to heaven, right? You know people that believe that? They say you have to be good to get to heaven. Well, the next question to follow up with that is how good do you have to be, right? How good do you have to be? And those who believe they have to be good to get to heaven, they answer that by looking at people around them that aren't as good as they are. And they say, well, I'm better than that person. I'm better than this person, and I'm a lot better than him or her. They, they like to gauge themselves against other people. The only problem with that is we don't have any evidence in Scripture that God grades on a curve, do we? There's no place that we find that, that God grades on a curve. It's according to what somebody else is. But, so, how, so how good do we have to be? The Bible, we find out, answers that question really, really, really well. This is what it says. You have to be perfect like Jesus. Anybody there? You have to be perfect in all your ways, in all your actions, in all your motives, in all your thoughts, in everything that you do. You have to be perfect like Jesus. And none of us are like that. None of us can be perfect because we're born into sin, and as a result, we all sin. Every one of us in this room, we all sin. That's just who we are. We, we sin. I'm not trying to justify our sins, but we have this nature. We have this propensity. We're drawn to sin. That's why you have to be trained in righteousness because that's who we are. There's only one who could keep the whole law. There's only one, and that was Jesus. So our way of being good is not going to work. It's not going to work out. The only way that will work is to believe that the only way to get to God is through Jesus, right? The way to have access to God is through Jesus, that he died on the cross for our sins, and he paid the payment on our sins. To believe in that, that Jesus died for us and accept him by faith. That Jesus said in John 14, 6, that I am the way the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That Jesus said that the only way to get to God the Father is through Jesus. The only way to get to heaven is through Jesus. The only way to be reconciled to God is through Jesus, only through him. No other way. Our way, your way, or anybody comes to you and say, I got a way to get to God, it's, it won't work. There's only one way, and it's through Jesus. So we can have hope this Christmas, not in our way, because there's no way that man can come up with that works. None of us can come up with a plan that works, but in God's way. Because God has a way, and that way is through Jesus. Amen? It's through Jesus. The second reason they have hope this Christmas is because God sent Jesus. He sent Jesus. We praise God for that, that he sent his son. The second part of verse 5 is very interesting. He says, but a body you prepared for me. Now, I'm going to get a little in, in, in the detail here, so pay attention and follow me closely what I'm saying here. That translation, a body you prepared for me, that we have here, is a little different than he's quoting from Psalm 40. He's quoting from Psalm 40, but it's different. Keep in mind, Psalm 40 was probably written about a thousand years earlier, right? And it was written in the Hebrew language. But then the Greeks come along, and they take that Hebrew Old Testament, and they translate it into the Greek, called the Septuagint, at about 200 B.C. And so when the author of the book of Hebrews comes along, he doesn't quote from the Hebrew version of the Old Testament. He is quoting from the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, where it says there, where it says, a body you prepared for me is what he's doing. He's not doing it from the Hebrew. That's why there's this difference in Psalm chapter 40, verse 6 through 8, that we find in here. So in, in Psalm 40, 6 through 8, it's different. It says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. My ears you have pierced. 
my ears you have pierced. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, it says, a body you prepared for me. And Jesus is saying this. What does that mean, my ears you have pierced for me? And I want to kind of give you what that means. There are a few interpretations of this. You could look at me, and then we don't have time to go through all of them. One says that it's referring to Jesus, that the little wording here in the Hebrew is, you dug out my ears. You dug out my ears. Doesn't sound too enticing, does it? Dug out my ears. Another interpretation, and probably the correct one, is this is a figure of speech called synecdoche. We don't use that very often, that's synecdoche. We have the same in English where our part is spoken in reference to the whole, right? Where an ear you have prepared for me is a body you have prepared for me. And we have similar when we say all hands on deck, right? Do we just mean the hands or do we mean the whole person? So a part is spoken in reference to the whole. In the Old Testament, it references a bow many times. We see in the Old Testament, we'll say a bow. It's a bow is referencing to the whole. It means all the army, all the weapons of war it's talking about. We say that often in the Old Testament where it talks about our bow. In this case, it says you, you're, you have pierced my ear, prepared a body for me. Ear represents the body. And it's important we understand that. Because when Jesus came to this earth, God had prepared a body for him to do the will of God. He had a body and had to be repaired for him for him to heal others in their, in their bodies, right? He had to have a body in order to be tempted at every point like us. They had to have a body to hang on a cross. They had to have a body in order to be thirsty. They had to have a body in order to be buried. They had to have a body in order to be resurrected. They had to have a body in order to be ascended to heaven. He had to have a body in order to fulfill many of the Old Testament prophecies. He had to have a body in that we might see him, the glory and the truth of God. He had to have a body for all those things. And God gave him a body, and that's what he's saying. I gave you a body to accomplish all this that God gave him. Max Lucado captures the wonder of this. He, he writes in it, it became, be, began in a manger. And I want to read a part of this, what he wrote. He says, think about it. The wonder of the incarnation. But in reality, that particular moment was like none other. For through that segment of time, a spectacular thing occurred. God became a man. While the creatures of earth were walked unaware, divinity arrived. Heaven opened herself and placed her most precious one in a human womb. The omnipotent one in one instant made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with the word shows to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God is a fetus, holiness sleeping in a womb, the creator of life being created. God was given elbows, eyebrows, two kidneys, and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and flowed in the amniotic fluid of his mother. God had come near. He came not as a flash of light, but as an unapproachable conqueror, but as one whose first cries were heard by a peasant girl and a sleepy carpenter. The hands that first held him are unmanicured, calloused, and dirty. No silk, no ivory, no hype, no party, no hoopla. Were it not for the shepherds, there would have been no reception. If it were not for the stargazers, there would have been no gifts. That you and I can have hope this Christmas because Jesus came to this earth where he said, the systems aren't working here on this earth. The systems aren't working. And God, your system is, is involves more than a manger. That it started, the story started in heaven, and it transitioned to this earth is what God did. It involved Jesus coming, that God sent Jesus, and it changed everything. Everything was changed when Jesus came to this earth. Nothing stayed the same. That now we have hope in eternity through Jesus, that we can be reconciled to God through Jesus. We can approach God 
through Jesus. We have hope and have a place in heaven through Jesus. All of it because of him. He changed everything. Without him, there is no hope for the future. But only through him we have hope because of Jesus. The third reason to have hope this Christmas is because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He says here in verse 7, Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will, O God. It's written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will. It probably was referring to Deuteronomy 17, when many kings had come and gone, and probably most of those kings, when they took the throne, they probably said the same thing. I've come to do your will, O God. I want to do your will, God. But only Jesus could say that with any credibility. Because he lived that every day, didn't he? He lived that every day. Often Jesus would say, I've come to do the Father's will. Remember when he was in the garden and he was praying, he says, is it possible take this cup of suffering from me? Nevertheless, your will be done and not mine. Jesus is saying, I've come to do your will, O Lord. I've come to do your will. We can have hope this Christmas because Jesus is and was the perfect sacrifice. We can have a hopeless in the world, yes, through Jesus. That's why we have it. We can have it through Jesus. No matter what's going on in the world, no matter what's around us, we can have hope because of him. Well, what do we do with that? What do we do with that today? And I want to answer that by reading Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 25, because it really gives us the answer to that question. He says, therefore, since you know all this, all these things, therefore, brothers, believers in Jesus Christ, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, that we can approach the throne of God now through the blood of Jesus by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Four things about this. I don't have any in your outline, but you might want to write them down. Because of Jesus, we can have hope in a hopeless world this Christmas because of this. The first one, he tells us in verse 22, and it's just, I'm just taking scripture, guys, what it says here. He says to draw near to Jesus. Draw near to Jesus. Let's draw near to him. Well, we can't draw, can't draw near to him our way. We have to draw near to God his way by believing and putting our faith and trust in that it understand who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's God, and what Jesus did, that Jesus came and he died on the cross for our sins and paid the complete payment for all of our sins, that he became our substitute on that cross. He died in your place on that cross. should have been us that died, but Jesus took our place. So everyone in this room and everyone in the world, Jesus came and he took their place on that cross, and he paid for their sins, past, present, and future. So all we, we all have the opportunity to go to heaven. God has made the way. It's a gift that he's given to us, but we have to reach out and accept that gift by faith. Right? says, so for it is grace you've been saved through faith. We've got to put our faith and trust in Jesus and accept the gift that God has given us. Say yes to Jesus. I know I'm a sinner, and I know Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. He was buried and raised on the third day. And now I put my faith and trust in Jesus. I trust him as my Savior. He's the only way to heaven. If you've never done that, please do that today. That's the most important first step, is to draw near to him by accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. 
please do that. If you have questions, please come and see me after the service. When the tragedies and hopelessness builds up in our world, we have no place to turn. Perhaps that's God's way saying to us, saying to the world, your ways aren't working. Your ways aren't working. Try mine. Because what you're doing out there is not working, and it's not. So God is saying to a world and to a church, we come to a place where we stop trying to find political answers to spiritual problems. We stop trying to find religious answers to spiritual problems. And we find hope only in Jesus. That's where we find hope. So this Christmas and always, draw near to Jesus, what he's saying. Draw near to him. You won't find hope out there. You won't find the answers out there. We draw near to Jesus and find the answers that we need, right? The important answers. The eternal ones that we need. We find them with Jesus. The second thing he says is, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. There are lots of things I don't understand. There's, there's lots of things I do understand. But there's lots of things I don't understand. When I don't understand, what am I supposed to do? Hold fast to the things that I do understand is what I'm supposed to do. I'm to hold fast unswervingly, unwaveringly. Hold fast to those things. You know God in his character. Hold fast to that. You know God in his sovereignty. You know God in his goodness. You know God in his compassion. You know God in his justice and his holiness. You, you know him, so you hold on to him unswervingly. You grip hold and you hold tight. You don't run from God, but you run to God. You know this as you're going through a difficult time. You don't know what to do. We know the, the, the God says who he is. We know his attributes, that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. He knows what's going on in your life. He's omniscient. He knows all things. That God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. We know that about God. We know God loves us. He's, he's full of God, full of grace and mercy and forgiveness. So during those times, we run and we cling toward God. We hold on. We don't run away from him. So many times we as believers in Christ, Christians, as we're going through difficult things, we stop going to church. We stop coming around God. We think we can figure it out ourselves. That's when we need him, especially. We're to run to God and cling to him with everything that we have, unswervingly, and hold fast to him, and trust the things that we, we know about God through the word of God. He says about himself, we hold on. Third, it says, spur one another on toward love and good deeds, in verse 24. This is a really mild translation. The wording can be there, spur, encourage, or exhort, but it's the word provoke. That's the word that's there, provoke. We know how to provoke people, right? It's used only a couple of times in the New Testament. And what it is, it's a strong provocation. The other time it is used in is Acts chapter 15, where Paul and Barnabas had this issue concerning John Mark. And they had such a disagreement that they parted ways. And Acts chapter 15 is used as a noun, but here in Hebrews chapter 10, it's used as a verb. And what he's saying, he says, I want you to provoke one another to love and good deeds. In a world of hopelessness is what he's saying. So what he's saying, he says, what he's saying is, I want you to bring out the best in each other. That's what that means. I want you to bring out the best. Provoke each other to be the best they can be by loving others and doing good deeds. Does it sound great for Christmas? Does it really sound great that you and I to provoke each other so they can be the best that they can be? And we do that by loving others and doing good deeds to others. That's what we should be doing, not only in Christmas, we should do that all year round, to provoke one another, to be the best they can be. That we're going around, that's what we should be doing. I'm looking to bring out the best in you and everything, the best. And the way I'm going to do that, not by telling you, by showing love towards you and doing good things to you, good deeds. That's what he's saying here. 
at fourth, he says, do not stop meeting together or meet together often, even, even more as you see the day approaching. Church attendance in the United States is down. It's down, and then the pandemic came, uh, COVID pandemic, and now it's really down the attendance. But those who truly know Jesus, those who say that I'm truly a follower of Jesus, there's no reason or excuse to just skip church, to say I, I'm not going to go or I'm not going to be there. The gathering together of believers, what it's saying here, it's so essential in a hopeless world that we need to gather together often, as many times as we can, to be together in this fellowship. So many times people say, especially today, they've, I don't know if it's the enemy, sometimes they'll say, we don't need church. That I don't need to fellowship other believers. I don't need to be around other believers. I could do this thing of myself. I could do it all by myself. I don't need other people. And we might believe that, but God tells us something different. He says, do not give up meeting together as some of the habit of doing. And all the more as you see the day approaching. God says, I know you better than you know yourself. And I'm telling you, you need to meet together. That's why God created the church. So you and I can come because we need this community to come together. We need the fellowship. We need the encouragement. We need to pray together. We need to come together and grow together in the word of God. We need each other to do that. We can't do that all by ourselves. God says you need each other to do that. That's why we come together. We need to come together collectively to worship God. Pour our hearts and minds to him. We need each other. That's what he's saying. And these are the things that we can do in a hopeless world. These are the things that we can do, these four things. We can do these things. Jesus is the hope. We have the assurance this Christmas season he is the only one who could sit on David's throne, amen? He is the only one who could do that. He is the only one who could fulfill the plan of God's system of God and bring redemption to the world. He's the only one who could do that, right? So let us hold fast to our profession. Let's draw near to Jesus during this time. Let's bring out the best each other. Let's meet as often as we can to come together to worship him, the one who gave us all for us because he's worthy of our worship, isn't he? Jesus is the reason we gather together. He's the one that binds us together. It's Jesus. It's in his birth, his life, and death on the cross that we celebrate because through his death and resurrection, we find forgiveness of sins and eternal life through Jesus. Amen? So this Christmas, we can have, we can have hope this Christmas because of Jesus. And as this passage says, God made a way for us, and he sent Jesus. So all of us this Christmas, what we're to do we are to draw near to Jesus. Amen? Draw near to him. That's what this passage says, draw near to Jesus. Now that you understand that you have a way access to God through Jesus, draw near to him. Everything we have, we draw near to Jesus. So do that this Christmas. Let's draw near to him. Let, let's pray. Lord, we come and we praise you. We praise you, Lord, for all that we have in Jesus Christ. We praise you, Lord, that we're able to draw near to you. Not because we have a way that works, because you have a way that works. And your way is by sending your one and only Son. And the only way we can come to you is through your Son, Jesus, who gave his all for us by dying on the cross for your sins. We're so thankful, Lord. We're so thankful in coming to this earth as a baby. We're so thankful, Lord, that his mission, his mission was to seek and save those who was lost, to go to the cross and die on the cross for our sins. And, Lord, we're here today to worship him, to worship you. And so thankful to lift up our hearts and minds and say, Lord, if it wasn't for that night, if it wasn't that day that he chose to come, all of our hope for eternity, all of our hope to, to have access to you and to speak to you and to pray to you would be gone, be lost. Because our system doesn't work. We see in the Old Testament it didn't work. It never did. The repentance on our heart when it's just 
relied on ourselves isn't enough because we can never stick to that. that. God, we needed a Savior. We needed someone who was greater than us and it was perfect that could fulfill your plan. And there was only one. There's not two. There's only one that could do that. And that was Jesus. Lord, we're so thankful for Jesus. We're so thankful for all that we have in Jesus Christ. For him coming to this earth, Lord, not just as a baby, but to go to the cross and die for our sins. Let our hearts and minds be filled with hope in a hopeless world this, this morning, this Christmas season. Not because of what's going around in the world, because of the people that maybe come around, but because of you, the light of the world, came into our life. And we know you. And we praise you. And Lord, we love you and we praise you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.